We are still amid the Ten Commandments, and this is mitzvah number eight of the Ten Commandments, and that is not to steal. But the, the Talmud, recorded by Rashi, tells us that there are several places in the Torah where it says don't steal. And, of course, if it was telling us the same thing, it would be redundant. And therefore, Rashi, again, quoting from the Talmud, tells us that when it says, thou shall not steal in the Ten Commandments, it does not refer to stealing money or possessions. It refers to stealing humans, i.e. kidnapping. So if a mitzvah in the Torah against kidnapping, and again, this is another one of those mitzvahs that carry with it a capital punishment in the event that certain requirements are indeed met. So a mitzvah not to kidnap, it seems to be pretty cut and dried. This is it. You cannot kidnap someone. Take them to possession against their will. Now, what are the parameters of this mitzvah? So the Ram tells us in the laws of theft, chapter 9, whoever steals a person, they are transgressing a negative prohibition, and it quotes our verse, don't steal. And again, he tells us that when it says don't steal in the Ten Commandments, it's referring to kidnapping. Now, there are four necessary requirements for someone to be guilty of this sin to the degree that it warrants a capital punishment. So number one, they have to kidnap. Number two, they have to take into possession means they have to bring that person to their possession. Number three, they have to force them to work. And number four, they have to sell them off to someone else. In order for a person to be killed in a Jewish court of law for the sin of kidnapping, for the transgression of kidnapping, has to be uh, these four requirements to actually kidnap them, to require them to bring them into their domain, to force them to work for them, and to sell them to someone else. Now, when it says force them to work, the Talmud's clear. The Ram tells us this does not mean you have to make them actually work on the fields or whatever. Even if you ask them to get you a glass of water or you force them to do with the most minimal amount of work, that is enough to fulfill that requirement. However, if you do any of those three without the fourth, it would still be prohibited, but it would not be with that same severity to warrant a capital punishment. Now, there are some exceptions to this mitzvah. And that is if someone, let's say uh, it's common today, you drive on the freeway and you see an amber alert. And if you don't turn off the settings in your phone, your phone explodes as an amber alert. But 99% of the time, what that actually means is a child's abducted. Or what it actually means is, is that parents got divorced. One has custody, you know, on, on Mondays and the other one said, oh, I'm going to take their kid. I'm, I'm picking up the kids and take them to, to get some ice cream. And it's technically by standards of the state considered kidnapping, but in our eyes, it would not be viewed necessarily as something which is the child's in mortal danger, God forbid. And similarly here, uh, the Talmud tells us that if someone is, let's say, the father or the brother or the close relative of the kidnappee, uh, that would that would not fulfill this requirement of considered as if that they kidnapped some foreigner and they are guilty of potentially a uh, a capital crime. And this law applies regardless if it's a young person, if it's an old person, if it's a male, if it's a female. It doesn't matter regardless if they kidnap a soul. It does not matter the age or the gender. That would render that person 
uh, into a kidnapper and they would be violating this law and potentially if certain requirements are met, it would be a capital offense. So there's really not a lot to say and the commentaries seem to understand this is a pretty self-explanatory, why this is a bad idea, uh, why, why the Torah warns us against this. But I think there are some interesting components of the general, the more broad subject that are worthy of, of discussing. So first of all, interestingly, yesterday I was studying uh, the Talmud and I coincidentally encountered an interesting story, which I thought I would share because it's germane to our subject. The Talmud's talking about what happened in the aftermath of the destruction of the temples. Of course, that's the nadir of Jewish history, our pride, the edifice in which God says he's going to reside is now destroyed, and we have foreigners taking over the land. But not just uh, the um, pride and joy of the Jewish people is destroyed, the Jewish control of the land, Jewish civilization, of course, many Jewish lives are lost. But there's another component of this tragedy, and that is that many Jews are taken as captive. So in effect, they're taken, uh, they're kidnapped. And we read about it in the beginning of the Book of Lamentations, the book that is oriented around focusing on the suffering that happened to us, especially as a result of the, of the two temples being destroyed, which of course are the, the pinnacle of that, of, of those tragedies. And it says, interestingly, that even though the Jewish people are kidnapped frequently or taken captive, when they're now in the possession of foreign rule, they rise to the top. And they become ministers. That's the, that's what the verse says. And it shares an interesting story. It's such a clever story that I figured it's uh, related to kidnapping and being uh, taken captive. And therefore, I would share it. So it tells a story that there were two Jews who were taken captive in Mount Carmel. So they're in Israel. The Babylonians come or the Romans come. It's not clear exactly when this happened. And they take them captive. And they're being now marched away into slavery. So they're walking along this trail and their uh, new quote-unquote owner is walking behind them. And this is uh, like a trail where other caravans are going through. So the two Jews who are now in captivity, they are talking to each other. And they start making observations. And one of them says to this friend, this is from the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin 104a and then b. He says, well, you see that camel over in the distance? Again, going the same direction as we are. We're following again. We're along this road. Well, this camel is blind in one eye. And in addition, the camel's carrying two jugs or two barrels. One of them contains oil and one of them contains wine. And the two people walking that camel, one of them's Jewish, one of them's not Jewish. That's the observation that someone makes from a distance. So their, their kidnapper is like, how can you possibly know that the camel that's a mile ahead of us is blind in one eye and the contents of its cargo and the identity of its, of its, of its owners? How, how could you possibly know that? So he explains. I made some observations. He's an observant Jew after all. He sees, <laughs> he sees that the camel 
is eating from the shrubbery, and it's eating only from one side. So clearly, it only sees when there's vegetation on one side, not the other side. Otherwise, it would eat equally from both sides. In addition, I see that it's dropping, but on one side, uh, the liquid that's dropping is sinking into the ground, and one side is floating. So it must be the oil. It must be as, it must be as oil on one and, and wine on the other. And in addition, I know that one of the people walking the camels is Jewish and one's not Jewish because I could tell that when they have to go to the bathroom, one of them just turns to the side and one of them goes into the, into the trees, goes into more, into more a modest way. So I could tell that one is Jewish and one's not Jewish. That's, that, that's what he tells his captor. So the guy will say, we're going we're gonna to test it out. He runs ahead and he goes to investigate. And he's like, exactly how this Jewish slave of his exactly at exactly how he predicted indeed came true. He runs back. He's so excited. He kisses them on their heads. He brings them to his house. He makes a huge party and he's dancing in front of them. He can't believe how, how brilliant these uh, people are. And he announces, blessed is the Almighty who chose the seed of Abraham and gave him some of his wisdom, gave them some of his wisdom. And wherever they go, they become masters and eventually he freed them as a result. An interesting story to show, I guess, the uh, the cleverness and the ingenuity of, of the Jewish people was not lost on their captors. And again, it's not directly related to our mitzvah, but I happened to have seen it yesterday. And I thought it was interesting to share that, of course, these stories or the, the, these uh, tragic realities, people got kidnapped, uh, it was present in, in antiquity. And of course, it's a very severe sin that carries with it some very stiff penalties. Now, there is a component of this mitzvah that is um, very central. In fact, our uh, sages and the Rambam elsewhere, they talk about this companion mitzvah as being one of the greatest mitzvahs of them all. And that is redeeming captives. When someone is taken as a hostage or as a captive... It is incumbent upon everyone else to do whatever it is they can to try to redeem them, to try to grant them freedom. And, of course, this is a component of a larger mitzvah, which is charity and kindness. But we're told in the Talmud and elsewhere that if someone has a certain amount of money and they can only use it for certain kinds of kindness, they don't have unlimited funds. And, of course, that's the reality in all instances – they have to choose which fund, you know, which or which goal they want to to fund. And the Ram tells us that to redeem captives, that is more important, that takes precedence, that supersedes to give food and sustenance to poor people and to give them clothing. And then he adds, there is no mitzvah as great as redeeming captives, because after all, when someone's taken into captivity, they're probably going to be hungry and they're going to be thirsty and they're going to be naked and they're going to be facing mortal dangers. And then he lists a litany of mitzvahs that someone's going to transgress. If someone ignores the captive and doesn't take steps to try to redeem them, there's all kinds of verses that they're transgressing. The verse from Deuteronomy 15, don't harden your heart. The verse from actually this week's parsha. Uh, that's the verse of 
Don't stand idly when your brother's blood is being shed. Don't work him too hard. Open up your hands to help the poor person. Let your brother live with you. Again, many, many verses. Love your fellow as yourself. Also, our, our, our parasha. Many, many verses that are fulfilled when someone redeems the captive. And then he tells us some interesting aspects of this mitzvah. Suppose a city raised funds to build a shul. Of course, a city has to have a shul. And it's a very important use of communal funds to build the shul. But now the shul is not built yet. And they have the money. And there's a question now, do we use the money for the shul? It's intended usage. It's been appropriated for that. But can we use it now for other causes? We could still sell this for only one mitzvah. There's one mitzvah that we could, that we could sell or, or that we could upgrade, so to speak, the usage of those funds for, and that is for redeeming captives. But for no other mitzvah, can we do that? Uh, that said, if the shul is already built, you don't sell the shul to redeem the captives. Now, even though it's important for us to redeem our fallen captives or brethren at almost any cost, if the cost is excessive, then we're told that we cannot redeem them. And the reason for this is if the standard rate, so to speak, for redeeming a hostage is, I don't know, $10,000 and they realize the Jews will pay, so they charge 100000 If we are to pay, then in fact we're not discouraging future instances, we're actually encouraging it. And therefore, the Mishnah tells us the book of Gittin that we do not redeem the captives if the price is steeper than market price. The fact there's a market price, I guess, indicates that this was more prevalent in, in ancient times, but this is the law. Because otherwise, if we do become the quote-unquote suckers who pay anything, then we're going to have this problem on our hands much more often. And there's an interesting episode of the Talmud where after the temple's destroyed, there were many slaves, in effect, that were taken by the Romans. And the Talmud tells that Rabbi Yehoshua was one of the veteran sages of the Jewish people, and he was also the liaison between the rabbis in Judea and the Romans in Rome. He was visiting the jails, the prisons, the camps of Roman captives and, and, and prisoners, and he found out there was a very talented young boy who was a scion of a pro- prominent uh, priestly family, and he said, I'm going to redeem him no matter what it costs. This is in the book of uh, the Talmud on page 58. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, how could you offer to pay whatever it takes when, in fact, the halacha is that you cannot pay more than the fair market value of a of a captive? And the Tosfos gives two answers. It says, well, there's maybe two exceptions. If someone is in real mortal danger then those rules don't apply. It means they're going to die, or it's likely they're going to die. Alternatively, if someone is the leader of the Jewish people or potentially will be destined to be the leader of the Jewish people, then we would make an exception for that as well. They're not just an individual, a random individual, but they are someone who either is or is destined to be 
uh, a person of, of, of leadership, a person who's going to help the entirety of the people, that person has greater value and we pay whatever it takes. There's a famous uh, episode in the 13th century where the leader of Ashkenazi Jewry, he was called the Maharam mi Rottenberg, called the Maharam, but he's from a place called Rottenberg, so Rottenberg. Uh, so he's known classically as the Maharam from Rottenberg. And he was taken captive by the local uh, Germanic tribe leader, and he was held for a huge ransom, which was raised by the public. But the rabbi, the great rabbi, insisted that he's not going to be ransomed because of this law. And it's interesting, even though he was the leader of the Jews, of the Ashkenazi Jews, he still refused to be released, and he was, in fact, there for years and years. And even after he died, his corpse was not released until, I believe, seven years after he had passed, someone ransomed his corpse, and indeed that person who ransomed his corpse was buried next to the, the great rabbi. They said, okay, because, you know, you were the one who doled out the big funds to ensure that the rabbi has a dignified burial, we're going to give you the burial plot that's next to him. Uh, but even though he was the leader of the Jewish people, he refused to allow himself to be redeemed for that astronomical sum because of what it would portend to the rest of the Jews. Now, the modern application of this law is the dilemma of, of what to do in the event where soldiers are kidnapped in war or in acts of terrorism. Of course, recently there was the the war in Gaza against Hamas, which was kick-started when they tunneled into Israel and they kidnapped a soldier. And this, and he was held uh, behind enemy lines for years. And eventually he was ransomed from Hamas, but in exchange for lots of terrorists. So what's the deal? Is that is that okay? And of course, there's multiple components to this question because there's the halachic consideration, and that is that we do not ransom someone for more than they're worth. So if you have one soldier and you want to trade it for one prisoner, it seems like one for one is a fair exchange. But somehow it doesn't work like that. The mathematics don't work like that. It's more like, you know, 5,000 for two bodies. So is that is that okay or is that not okay? Uh, moreover, there's another component, and that is that the people who are are being ransomed are not innocent civilians. There's a reason why they were in an Israeli prison. Because they're terrorists. So these terrorists are more likely to be future terrorists. They're more likely to have instances of recidivism. And therefore, is it okay for us to release them with the understanding there's a high likelihood of them going back and trying to kill more Jews? So it's a very complex question because, of course, there's, uh, you know, emotionally it's very hard for us to tell a family or friends of someone that, oh, we're not doing everything we can to release your brother or your child. On the other hand, how could release these people? You know, the founder of Hamas was in an Israeli prison. And then they exchanged him with the understanding, of course, that he's not going to make any more calls for violence which lasted exactly a half hour. He's returned to Gaza, and a half hour later, he's making calls for suicide bombs and the like. And eventually, of course, the Israelis got to him. In 2004, they took an Apache helicopter, 
and they disguised its entrance by flying to F-16s so that no one would hear them. And as he's leaving from the mosque in the morning, they shot these Hellfire missiles and they, of course, blew him to smithereens and uh, good riddance, of course. But he was in Israeli prison. He was released in 1997. And, you know, the Hamas-inspired intifada of the 2000-2001-2002, it killed hundreds. Now, of course, he wasn't the only one calling for calling for violence and terror, but it's kind of an interesting question in hindsight. Was it worth it? I would argue it wasn't. It wasn't. They should have blown him up, uh, should have just executed him them, them earlier. That's what I think. You know, people that are, that have blood to the blood on their hands, why should they be released? I think it's crazy. But again, there's political considerations and it's a very emotionally charged question. And I believe when they did do it, they actually consulted with the chief rabbis of Israel. So again, I'm not going to give my, uh, render my halachic authority or opinion. Uh, but just from the simple understanding of the verse, I don't know what the, what the justification would be to release terrorists who are likely to kill more Jews in exchange for a soldier. I don't know. It's an interesting question and it's, uh, it's a, it's a very difficult one to, to untangle. Now there are some interesting and maybe counterintuitive laws that are present with respect to redeeming captives. Should we encourage people to try to escape or should we encourage to try to do rescue missions to save captives? So by the strict letter of the law here, the Ram tells us that we do not try to help captives escape. Why? Because if we did, then the, the enemies would make their life more difficult and would be very strict in their, in, in watching them. And that is a net negative. An interesting law. Now, what if someone decides themselves that they want to sell themselves as a slave? Do we redeem them or not? So the law is that, yes, we do. Even though they brought this upon themselves, still we redeem them because, after all, they're, they're one of our brethren and what, what will we do for them? They do it a second time, we redeem them a second time. They do it a third time, three strikes, you're out, you are on your own. However, that law does not apply to the children. So if children were sent into slavery by their dad, of course, it's a tragic thing. But if it does happen, we redeem the children again and again. It's not their fault. And even if someone sold himself off, sold himself off three times, if they are in mortal danger, we will buy them back again. Now, suppose we only have enough money to redeem one captive, and we have a male and a female. Which one do we give priority to? So an interesting question. So the law states that it depends. In a standard case where it's just two slaves, again, they were just taken captive by the evil Gentiles or whatever it may be, we redeem the woman first. However, this may be a little controversial. However, if they are being used as sex slaves, then we redeem the man first before the woman. That's what the law states because it's much more degrading for him than it is for her. Now, what if you have a Kohen and a Levite and both of them are sadly, tragically taken captive? Who do you give priority to? Give to the Kohen. 
And it lists over here, the Kohen comes before the Levi, the Levi comes before the Israelite, the Israelite comes before the Chalal, and the Chalal before the Shtuk, and the Shtuk. It lists a, whole, a list of ten different denominations or, or classifications, and it gives an order. However, that is only when they are equal in wisdom. And this is an interesting law that shows how Torah is a great equalizer. If you have a mamzer, a bastard who's a Torah scholar, and you have a high priest who is an ignoramus, and they're both side by side held in captivity, you redeem the bastard, the mamzer, who is a Torah scholar, ahead of the high priest who is an Am Haaretz. That's the law because the Torah is someone's own acquisition. And therefore, if they have it, they earned it on their own. And if someone's a coin, their father's a coin, they didn't do anything to earn it. They didn't do anything to earn it. And therefore, they don't necessarily have that as their own personal individual achievement. Whereas if all things are all other things are equal, well, the Kohen, they come from a more prestigious family and they are granted first dibs. So those are some of the laws related to redeeming captives, which is a component of the discussion related to kidnapping. But the bottom line is that kidnapping is one of the most severe sins. And I don't imagine anyone listening to this has a proclivity to it, but it's important to know it and to understand some of the basic rules governing this mitzvah.